Cash TV. We're really pleased to be with you tonight. We've got a great guest and a really interesting, I think, really key topic for mental health nurses and mental, people interested in mental health to sort of get their heads around. We're going to be talking about therapeutic relationships. But before we introduce you to our guest and get cracking, let me um, pass over to Vanessa so she can tell you how you can join in with us tonight because we really want to hear from you. Vanessa? Thank you, Nikki. It's nice to be back. Um, so if you'd like to join us tonight, we'd love for your comments. You can join in one of two ways or both ways. You can either join in on Facebook and you just need to like the Unite MHNA page. And then the feed should pop up on your news feed and there'll be a box for you to comment and you can watch it in real time. If you're on Twitter, then follow the hashtag MHTV and you should see all the comments in there. I'll be keeping an eye on that as well. So any questions you've got, do ask on Twitter or Facebook and we'll feed them into the discussion tonight. Thank you, Nikki. Okay, so let me pass over to our fantastic guest, Professor Wright. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. Thank you. Yes, so my name is Karen Wright. I'm a professor of nursing at the University of Central Lancashire, which is in Preston in the northwest. I'm a mental health nurse, but I was first an adult nurse and I'm also a CBT psychotherapist vocally. So it's really good to Busy. be Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And what we really um, wanted to talk about, and obviously you've done a lot of, of research and work in this area, is thinking about therapeutic relationships. So what does it mean? What does it involve? What skills might be needed? And I guess a good place to start would be maybe just defining what a therapeutic relationship is and what it might involve. Yeah, great question. Thanks, Nikki. I think a therapeutic relationship is some is a phrase that everybody uses. Everybody uses. It's the first line on a care plan, isn't it? Establish a therapeutic relationship. And everybody thinks they know what it means. Yeah. But it definitely means different things to different people. And lots of other phrases are used, like working alliance, helping alliance. Some people use the word rapport, actually, instead. But actually, for me... A therapeutic relationship is a connection that works to enable to enable the person that you are working with to feel that something therapeutic is happening between the two of you, something that makes them feel better, something that in some way enables the person to believe that a connection has been made that will lead them to recovery and they don't even have to think that that in so many words but it's a relationship that is created by by a worker clinician a nurse any any sort of health worker where the whole intention of that relationship is for the benefit of the person that you are talking to. Mm. So you've got lots of different things in there, haven't you? So the first thing is the idea that it's intentional, that it's purposeful, uh, that it has a that has a rationale and a reason, and that is for the other person's benefit, for their growth, for their recovery. Um, so how how do you how do you establish one then? How would you go about that? Yeah. So that's that's a. a Another great question, actually. And when I when I started mental health nursing, I said to somebody, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do this. Um, mm. It's it, it seems to be really, really not so defined like adult nursing. It's not such a list of tasks. It's, it's so ill defined. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. And somebody said to me, she's called Julie. Um, I did my general training. With her, and she just said to me, Karen, just be yourself. Mm. Just be yourself just be friendly and kind and be yourself and actually I think the key to it is that level of authenticity that level of humanity that humanness that acknowledgement that actually we all have a that human vulnerability but actually that that warmth and that sense that actually you are pleased to be in the company of that other person is a really great place to start I would say mm, definitely and one of the things you were saying um, was about how important it is that it's a, a two-way experience. I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Because there's two ways of seeing this as well. Because actually, a therapeutic relationship always needs to focus on the person that you're looking after, mm. that you're caring for, that you are, are trying to aid in mm. terms of their recovery. Mm. And I use the word looking after, but I think I want to change that, actually, because I think it's more about enabling 
really. I think this is my old my old school nurses hat coming on, really, that actually is more about um, the other person. But the, um, the focus should always be on there. And if the focus becomes on yourself, then straight away, I think you've lost the balance. So it's two ways in that both people have to invest in it. Mm. But if you find yourself talking about yourself, disclosing too much about yourself, then actually it, it stops being therapeutic. So... So I would invest in it in terms of giving time, giving energy, giving focus, giving good eye contact, looking like I genuinely am interested in you. Mm. You know, what you've brought into the space with me is something that we both are working on. Mm. So I think that it's about investing on whatever the the service user needs you to work on with them rather Mm. than um you know being too sharing about yourself and that's mm. where the that's where the two-way process comes in it's it's the catalyst for making the intervention yeah and that's interesting because i think a lot of times i mean I, I work with people who are maybe just starting out thinking about therapeutic relationships and they, they want to know the list of rules. So what can i say do i have to say my surname or not my surname do i say where i live do i do i have children or not and then you have you're realizing actually what you're doing is you're coming at it from the wrong angle. You're thinking about what, how is this about me? And it's not about you. And that's the mistake, isn't it? This idea that you think you can have a list of, of do's and don'ts, but actually if you are focused on supporting that other person to um, sort of um, self-actualize, to be well, to, to, to thrive in the best way that they can, then it isn't about you. There shouldn't really, you shouldn't really be in that relationship in a, in the same way that you would be in a friendship relationship. You know, when, when you first meet people, maybe even at uni, when you come to uni for the first time, do you have that, you have those set conversations that you keep having over and over again, like yeah. where are you from, where are you from, what A-levels did you do, what A-levels did you do? You know, all, all the kind of questions that layer on top of each other where the therapeutic relationship is not like that. And that can be quite confusing, I think, for people starting out in therapeutic relationships, but also for people experiencing a therapeutic relationship, you know, for service users who maybe haven't come into contact with this before. So have you, have you thought about ways that you can help people to understand from a service user perspective what to expect in a help helping relationship, a therapeutic relationship? Yes, that's a good question. I think one of the things that you were saying there was about the things that we say And I think it's much more important what you hear than what you say. Mm -hmm. So I think if you turn that around and think about the service user, the most important thing is that they are heard, that they are Mm -hmm. enabled to say what is going on for for them. And actually, it might be very little in terms of words, Mm -hmm. but the space is created that um, enables a person to trust the worker so that they can say... They can talk freely without being judged, without being fired with another question. So I might ask you a question, but actually I've not heard what you've said if I ask you another question straight away. So I might say to you, hi, Nikki, it's really nice to see you today. And you may may say, oh, good, you too. And if I go straight on to saying, how did you get here today? Hmm. I've not really heard that because I might Hmm. say, are you, are you really? What's good about it? What, what makes it that it's good? Mm, mm. You know, I think I think a service user should expect that the person they're talking to hears them, reflects back to them what they've heard, mm. and then just actually really shows an interest in the um, yeah that personal account, mm. not just moves on to the next question because we're mm. very very good at asking questions. Mm. And if you're on the other side of that, it feels more like an interrogation than a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the sort of fundamental components you've been talking about is that purposefulness, um, mutuality, Mm -hmm. that it's a benefit for for both people to be involved in it, to to work towards that task. Is there any other things that you would say are absolutely, or trust as well, um, that are fundamental components of, of a therapeutic relationship? Yes, there's a number of them. And you said about early on about you're not somebody's friend. Mm. But it is okay to be friendly. Yeah. 
And that's that's very different. But one of the things that I did, you know, when I wrote the, the paper that's in mental health practice mm. was I tried to look at what the qualities and skills were, because we all know Peplow's model and Peplow's model is about the roles, you know, the mother surrogate, the educator, what have you. People talk about what um, what you do in a therapeutic relationship, but rarely talk about who you need to be and actually what qualities you need to bring to it. So that's why I came up with the attached model. Mm. So, so the attached model works alongside, um, for me, Bowlby's attachment. And an attachment, in that sense, a therapeutic attachment, is actually not when people say, oh, you know, you're getting a bit attached in that negative way. It's in that very... Um, that sense that actually maternal attachment or parental attachment is attachment that helps a person to grow so that they've grown enough to leave you, to be independent, to go completely. Not mm. that, you know, which is really quite different. So, so in the attachment model, I came up with firstly, authentic, being authentic. Mm. Secondly, being trustworthy. Mm. And trustworthiness isn't just about, well, I dare tell you my secrets because I think you're lovely and you won't tell anybody. Mm. It's the fact that actually I cannot just trust you as a person to treat me with kindness and respect, but I can trust you to offer me evidence-based care because mm. actually a trustworthy nurse doesn't just do what they think feels right. They mm. do what the evidence says will work mm. and they will, you know, they'll know what the policies and protocols are for the place. I'll trust you to give me trustworthy information. Mm. Uh, and the third one, this is super tricky, really, in busy services, is timekeeping. Yeah. Because we have no, we have such little time and we're rushing about like blue bottles. And people always think that you need time to be, to create a relationship. Actually, it's how you use the time mm. that is really useful. Um, and so you get people that have got lots and lots of time with with um, mm. service users because they're on supportive observations, they're on the supervision. And so actually those are perfect examples of time that you have with somebody else for them to feel special, that you're not just watching them, you are with them, you are being with them mm. for their benefit. So actually we can use time. And that's another mm. point actually, that you don't have to be a, a registered professional to make a therapeutic relationship when I did my study with women with um, anorexia um, often it was the it was the unqualified unqualified the HCAs mm. and the meal coordinators that they had the really best relationships mm. with um, so then the fourth so we've got ATTA approachable which speaks for itself in lots of ways mm. C is um Consistent communicator. Now, I said mm. consistent communicator rather than just communicator. Yeah. We all talk. We all communicate. But actually, are we consistent with that? You know, do we tell somebody, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'll be there at I'll be there at 10 past. But actually, then you get there at 20 past. And do you say, oh, I'm going to sort this out for you? I'm sure you'll be able to go and leave tomorrow. But then go tomorrow and go, oh, yeah, no, you can't go and leave. And I forgot to ask. I'm really sorry. But we've got to be really consistent because we've got mm. to be like we've got to be reliable. Mm. We're not trustworthy if we're not consistent, actually. Yeah. And we and we create um, an unpredictable and insecure environment. Consistency and constancy is really important. Mm, definitely. So then we've got A, T, T, A, C, and then the H is honest, being honest. Mm. And that isn't just about telling the truth. It's about if somebody says to you, am I always going to have to take these medicines? Or, or am, I am I going to suffer like this again? Mm. You don't, you, you give an honest, heartfelt mm. response to that. So somebody yeah. really believes that what's, there, what's important to them is important to you too, sufficiently mm. that you will be absolutely honest and, and trust that person to manage the truth in the context of mm. that um, that evidence base and knowledge about how we will continue to provide or, or whatever for that individual. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. honesty is the key, I think, in lots of ways. Mm. So that's the attached model, and that's not about you know what the therapeutic relationship is or what you have mm. to do. It's not about tasks. 
it's about you know individual qualities and skills mm. and i think that being is often quite complicated because it feels like mm. you feel they need to be doing something instead of being yeah. something yeah. and it, it can be quite anxiety provoking to know if you're doing it right so how do people know do you think that they that they are they're in therapeutic relationships which are positive which are working how would people understand whether that's working for them or working for the other person Mm. let's think about that okay then so let me talk to you about Borden's model because I think this I think this will click in well to this so Borden's model of of the working alliance is that there are three elements to uh, a working alliance which is that to this uh, same technology really for therapeutic relationship one is the bond mm-hmm. and the bond is what we often talk about isn't it in terms of um therapeutic relationship but the other two are the the um the goal and the task now each of these things completing the task identifying and working towards the goal and the bond are all reciprocal roles but actually, unless you get the bond right, you will never be able to establish the right goal for the person or be able to then negotiate what the task needs to be enabled to get to that goal because the bond is the catalyst. Okay. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think as well, but I think as well, we can overcomplicate stuff too, don't we? If, if you want to know if it's working, maybe ask the other person. Well, Just, of course, yes. That's <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see why you're smarter than me. <laughs> no, that is the simple answer. When you do psychotherapy training, they always ask you to check out with the other person. Is this working for you? Is this all right? You know, when you left last week, how did you feel? Could we have done anything? Yeah differently and um, that was something that really appealed to, to me actually it really hit me hard that I don't think I was ever asked in my mm. training say to a service user is this working for you are you mm. finding this okay you know yeah. is it, it helping yeah is it helping is it mm. uh, but yeah ask them is a great thing <laughs> for sure <laughs> oh you know and um, Vanessa if you wanted to come in please do if you don't we'll carry on because there's a couple more things I think we would like to just investigate. Did you want to come in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just want with a quick question so we don't lose it, and um, that we've had. And um, that was about, um, yeah, um, what advice would you give for managing a relationship when the person isn't easy to like? So, for example, sexist, racist, etc. And that's from very. It's it's yeah. tricky. It's tricky, isn't it? And when you look at that, you look at that um, question in the context of the fact that you know we're told to use ourselves, and we use ourselves all the time. And travel be talked a lot about use of self, but in many ways we ha- we have to maintain the position that actually we don't judge people. We don't judge people. But if somebody is doing something that is hurting other people or offending other people, then that also comes down to authenticity and honesty, really. Mm. And I think that we should always be authentic and honest. And if somebody is being racist or hostile when you're talking to them, it's Mm. good to reflect that back because they might not even realise, you know, they might not even they might not even realise that one of uh, there was a, a young woman that I used to see when I was a CPN in Preston and the receptionist on um in A&E said to me oh Karen that woman she's so hostile she frightens me to death she's really really angry she's in my face she frightens me I I don't really want to have anything to do with her and I said really really and it dawned on me that actually she wasn't really hostile and she wasn't really angry she was terrified yeah but when people are frightened they behave in ways that actually they probably would prefer not to do Mm, yeah and and, you know, she lost her regard for, you know, personal space. Her voice was louder. She couldn't concentrate. So things came out in a sort of a, a shortened, abrupt way. And so actually sometimes I think we have to think, you know, is this person behaving like this because of something that is outside of their control? And how can we help them gain control? And if they can gain control they may be able to control themselves in this situation a bit better as well. Yeah. 
Um, but also, it's not our job to like people, is it? It's our job to help them to get better. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I quite agree. I'm just thinking about working with people in prison, really. Um, mm. you, you might be supporting somebody who's, you know, committed the most horrendous crime. Um, but I think for me, it's about being able to put the crime to one side and being able to meet the person where they are now and to focus. Yeah to focus on that really um and even you know when people commit a crime there's often lots of factors that you know we don't see in the media it's usually a lot more nuanced and, and complicated but I think you know certainly therapeutically it's about you know working with a person as they are in the here and now and focusing on the relationship and I think um when you were talking then I was also thinking about attachment as well I think that's pretty crucial isn't it as well you know the sense that sometimes people push you away but that's because they're used to being pushed away yeah or they have a disorganized attachment and they're very inconsistent and yeah you know for me it's about being aware of those dynamics in a relationship and as you say you being the consistent person so that trust does develop after, over time and that's a really really good point actually because not everybody can tolerate a lot of contact yeah and, you know, sometimes it's baby steps, isn't it? And sort of being just using your, um, yeah, using your intuition to an extent, actually, to just sort of feel your way nice and gently with people. Because actually, if you are just a little bit too friendly or a little bit too intrusive, then you can really frighten somebody away. Definitely. Yeah. And sometimes they will push you away to test you. That actually, are you really, can, will they trust you to come back? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And something about trauma as well, being trauma-informed, isn't there, within every therapeutic relationship is, is absolutely crucial. And I guess we're only really just starting to talk about that now um, yeah. in a broader context. Yeah, 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 for sure. Creating a safe space is very, very important, isn't it, actually? And sometimes... Sometimes people will say things to a person they feel safe with that they wouldn't say to anybody else, even if those things feel a little bit hurtful to the person they're saying it to. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you were saying earlier about um, checking out whether the, the relationship's working for the person. It's also considering things like gender dynamics, isn't it? Making sure people have the opportunity to choose, um, you know, the gender of the person that they're being supported by just as an example you know if someone's experienced trauma but also it might be more subtle um you know and again I'm getting a bit psychodynamic but you know we don't know um that we might remind somebody of somebody else for example so it's being yeah. aware of all those issues as well I think yeah no absolutely and not feeling that we have to be the problem solver actually yeah. that's another point that goes along like that because actually we're not we're not here to be people's rescuer yeah that's not, that wouldn't be a therapeutic role actually a therapeutic role would be enabling a person to save mm. not necessarily save themselves but to give them the the capacity to um to be independent and actually mm. if, if we are too busy solving somebody's problem or, or saving them from the situation, then that doesn't give that person the strength, the capability and the capacity to function without you. So that attachment and that sort of almost sort of parental role is about building a person to be strong enough to be without you. So we have to feel ready to be pushed away as well when they don't need to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So we've talked about things like empathy. You've talked about being self-aware, being psychologically informed, being trauma-informed. I think there's a couple more questions as well um, coming, Vanessa. Let me just have a look. I've not picked them up while I've been talking. Yeah, there is. Um, Annie Cox, um, what, do you, what do you think the specific differences are in building therapeutic relationships with children? That's a good one. How does it differ with children? Yeah. Now, I've got to admit, I've never, I've never worked in a cam service or anything like that. Actually, I haven't. And, um, I do, I do see clients as young as fourteen, but not younger than that. So, um, I, I just think that with children, and this, I could be entirely wrong. I'm talking off the top of my head here. This is not mm. research that I've done, but just mm. as a mother. 
children take things at face value. So every word that comes out of your mouth needs to be very carefully thought through. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I think using communication, using language that is understandable. Mm. I think that language isn't the only way to communicate with a child. And certainly one of the things that I used to do with my own children, and actually I've even done it with adults actually, is sometimes drawing things or acting things can be much more powerful and much more helpful than expecting somebody to explain something to you. You can show you things in different ways and children can be incredibly creative yeah. in that way. But I, I have to hold my hand up and say I'm not a children's nurse and actually I'm it's, it's that's just that's just coming from the heart rather than the mind really yeah yeah I think one of the things then because I, I did some work last year um with children and young people services and one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was um online therapy with young people it, the way that it gave the ability of the young person to be able to turn the camera off and just speak or to to not be viewed um, and different ways of, and I guess it applies to adults, but particularly with children, not wanting to be seen on camera, but actually able to develop a relationship as long as the therapist understands that um, the person feels safer if they're not on camera. Um, so that that kind of made me reflect a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Throw that in there. But I think what you said about being creative is, is probably really key, isn't it? Working with young people. Um, but I, I mean, play yeah. quite a lot in the children's yeah. nursing course. I know they use play an awful lot, actually, yeah. and they, you know, and they learn through play. Yeah, and I've heard about um, all sorts of things like you know using Minecraft and things to to kind of stimulate discussions. But if um, yeah, if people are listening tonight anywhere who work with children and young people, yeah, do send us your tips in. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Good question, Annie Cox. Then, yeah, 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 thank you. Jake, a couple more. Oh, yeah. Let's see. Where are we? Um, I'm not sure what that means in context. It's very tricky when you are not sure to pry too much. I'm wondering if that's like in response to um, to something we've said. Mm, Hannah was sort of talking about that. I think um, it yeah. came from about how you explore challenging yeah. difficult subjects because yeah. because you can ask a question doesn't mean you necessarily should and there's times and places aren't there for True. opening up this kind yeah. of ones with people so yeah. you will not if you're if you're a newbie the things that you will not be thankful for by your colleagues are if you start an in-depth distressing conversation about someone's past history of trauma just as we're about to change shifts or just as you're about to go off and leave it for the next team to sort out so just because you can ask something just Bear in mind if it's in that person's best interest for you to explore that, because sometimes I think when people are new to mental health, mm. the headiness of being able to you know read notes or know all about somebody or, or or the side of them that's captured in their notes, which is not all about them, um, be quite intoxicating. But it's um, a privilege, not a right, to know about people's pain. And I think it's when you ask and whether it's actually in that person's interest, really. Yeah guide you as to whether you ask questions or not and how you ask them and yeah. the timing of them for sure yeah i think yeah. that so you make a good point in the attachment model actually about actually the timing of your your question can be really crucial you're absolutely right on that mm -hmm. i think as well though um you know looking at it from a kind of flip side as well mental health nurses avoid asking those questions so sometimes we're very well placed to ask questions about say domestic abuse and you know nurses can be quite reluctant to ask those questions because it opens up a can of worms so I guess it's also about um you know helping us kind of mm. understand how to ask those questions and as you mm. say context and then what yeah. you do once somebody's actually opened up you know mm. it's one thing asking but when somebody opens up to you and tells you this stuff then you know what where do you take it next so I think mm. they're really important aspects as well definitely uh, we've got a question from Michael Haslam I wonder how much of our effectiveness as mental health nurses might be attributed to therapeutic relationships we build rather than a specific approach or therapy we deliver so that's one for you both there to have a think about what do you what would you say to that 
Well, I would say thank you, Michael. Michael's my PhD student, so. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to help you, Michael. Well done, you. Yeah, good good question. Yeah, I think what I would say is it's a bit like that bond task goal, that Bowden's model. Actually, if you don't have the bond, nothing else is going to work. But actually... Um, Yolom said um, that the therapeutic relationship can be healing in its own right. And I do believe that because actually believing that, that somebody cares enough about you to connect with you, to help you in your journey to recovery, can sometimes just be that catalyst to, to, to lift you and help you to um, gain the motivation, the strength, the um, openness to that path to recovery so yes thank you Michael yeah and then I would add like a really specific example about working with people and supporting people when they're in prison or other health injustice settings you know sometimes being that only person that brings sort of warmth and humanity and is consistently going to see someone it's not about getting there and delivering them you know, a really skilled therapeutic intervention using a particular model. Sometimes it is just about, you know, being consistent, going to see someone, being compassionate and, um, and you know, like we said before, holding space and listening to people and that can make a massive difference. And, you know, mm. um, it, it's, um, yeah, it gets undervalued, I think, a lot, but I think it's something that I think we can't, you know, emphasise enough and I think mm. it's, for me, like working in prisons was when I realised how sort of skilled mental health nurses are because there's so much focus on us being able to use CBT and, and solution yeah. therapy and, and everything else. But actually the humanistic aspect is often what changes people's lives and makes a difference to people. And it's really important. No, you, you're absolutely right there, Vanessa. And actually that element of reliability mm just keys so much into sort of trustworthiness doesn't it as yeah i think so yeah Mm. Yeah. rubri's brought up the um work that carl rogers did around the importance of the individual rather than the therapy itself yeah has said um you've made her head spin oh that's good (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good thing um so how how would you prepare then as somebody who's about to engage in a therapeutic relationship? Because both of the things you've talked about, you know, the idea about being really present for somebody, being able to really listen to somebody, those things are actually quite exhausting if you're doing them for a whole shift. So mm. how, do we, how do we look after ourselves? How do we keep that therapeutic relationship on the on the road? For, for I thought maybe both of you would like to have a bash at that one. How do we manage it? Mm. In terms of keeping it going, yeah. How do you how do you prepare yourself to be, to engage therapeutically with other people yeah. and sustain yourself when you're actually constantly doing something that requires emotional effort and labour on your part? Mm. Shall I, I answer? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I'll come to me in a second. Because you're right, it is exhausting. It, it's a bit. I I often relate it to phenomenology because that's my research method of choice, and actually, I I. I was really taken by um, the principles of the philosophy of phenomenology when I did it for my uh, my PhD thesis, in that it's about it's actually about stepping into somebody else's world, accepting as it it as it is, and um, valuing it as it is. And actually, when you do that, it can have an impact on you. It really can, and. Um, even when I think about doing research interviews, so for example, when I, I remember talking to one of the women in my study who had anorexia, she was a she was a ballet dancer. Her BMI was about 11 and a half. She was skeletal. And, mm. and one of the things about being a researcher is you think, yes, you connect to relationships, but actually you, no, nobody expects you to do anything afterwards. You go away. There's no responsibility on you to, to do anything except be in that moment with that with that person but entering that person's world entering her world she said to me once I don't I don't even know why you're bothering with me mm. because I'm and she used this phrase that still it cuts me when I, mm. I hear it out loud she said I'm slug slime mm. and I remember holding it together whilst I was talking to her and I'd been a nurse for 30 years when I was talking mm. to this young woman this beautiful young woman with so mm. much and so 
articulate said this to me and I held it together when I was with it and I was not there as long as I would be on the shift and then I got into the car and I just sobbed mm. I just sobbed actually because when you're in the presence of that of that um that absolute honesty and openness and sort of peeling back the layers and somebody just mm. sharing something with you that is so um so raw if you if, if you are really there in an authentic way, yeah. you're not wearing a suit of armor. You can't you can't mm. be impervious to it. And I think if you were impervious to it, then you'd probably be heading towards burnout because that's when you stop being able to really be authentic and caring. But but yes, we have to look after ourselves. And that doesn't mean looking after ourselves is one of the things everyone says, you know, we have to look after ourselves, we have to learn to be resilient. Mm. But actually. Yeah, we might have to learn to be resilient, but actually the services that we need to work in need to make it possible for us to be resilient. Actually, that's yeah. not just down to that's not just down to us being strong enough to get through a shift and then and then being able to practice mindfulness, maybe putting some nice relaxing music on in the car. We might be going straight to pick the kids up from school, making dinner, we might have elderly relatives. When do we look after ourselves? So I would say isn't actually just about us looking after ourselves. It's about the enablers for that in the service that we are working with, that there are so I know in East Lanx they had a, I'm trying to remember what it's called, I think it might be called an oasis or a crisis room or somewhere mm. where actually when you feel that you just things are just weighing a bit heavy on you or you just need a bit of time, you can take yourself away and go in the room, shut the door for five minutes and yeah. just take a few deep breaths or actually just go to a person and say, look, I'm sorry, I just need a few minutes. Mm. So it's So I really don't think it's something that you have to do because I don't think that we can be held responsible for just looking after ourselves. Our service needs to look after us as well. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's not a one size fits all, is there? Because uh, everyone's different and everyone, you know, not only is everyone different, but you feel differently in every therapeutic encounter, don't you? Not everybody pushes buttons, but some people do. Some people mm. make you feel drained. Some people make you feel anxious. You know, each encounter is different. Some environments you can't get away and, you know, you're there for, uh, you know, intense seven, eight hours. And then afterwards, you need to kind of self-care in other environments. You're able to take that time out to reflect and have group supervision and things. And that might be the way that you manage it. So I, I think every situation is different, isn't it? But the main thing is being aware of it and being aware of the impact. And I think what you were saying about burnout is really important. And thinking about the times in my career that I've worked with people who have been burnt out. And when I've worked in environments myself where I felt like, God, I can't work here for much longer. I need a change of environment because you do start to feel that I could get depersonalized because you're dealing with other people's trauma day in, day out, constantly. And, you know, the human response is to, you know, disassociate yourself from it after a while. But obviously that's not what's therapeutic. So it's, you know, it's being aware of that as well, isn't it? Mm. And I hate, you know, the resilience word, it's just hateful, isn't it, really? Because it does completely put the responsibility on the person. And often it's about resilient systems, not resilient people. And mm. Yeah. Annie Cox has said, I think we rely far too much on uh, therapy. It's those core, highly skilled communication interventions that mental health nurses own. that We need to understand them apply far better than we do. Um, we haven't just developed therapy around these, we've developed a profession, which is an interesting group. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a question for you both. Um, one from Deb smith Troyes and uh, John Odevi says it's the same question he was going to ask too. Um, and it's how do we prevent the therapeutic relationship being overshadowed by checklists and auditable documents in this restricted, time-restricted environments? And it worries me as a student nurse with minimal experience. So one for you both there. Mm. Mm. And of course, there is a checklist, there is a scale for the therapeutic relationship. What's it called? The interpersonal relativity index or something like yeah. that. And the really bizarre there is. Thing, and the bizarre thing about it is, is you don't give it to the service user and say, Will you score me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. That would be a risk, I've got to be yeah. honest. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I think I yeah, it's striking, isn't it, that that's a question from a student as well, I think. It's a striking reflection 
reflection on you know the culture of organizations and, and the way we operate at the moment um, and you know I know those things are important for you know monitoring services and making sure that where, you know, best practice guidance is met and all the rest of it and regulation and everything else. But um, it's also about, you know, the therapeutic relationship. It can't always be quantified in those terms, can it? And I think, you know, I'm still of the mindset that if I see somebody, I don't take paperwork in, you know, fill it in afterwards and try and concentrate on the encounter with the person at the time. And the reality is that, you know, we have become very kind of, paperwork and evidence um you know based and you know target driven and all the rest of it and we've just got to find ways around it haven't we yeah yeah it's that thing isn't it if you've not written it down you've not done it no exactly I wonder and, if as well it's an issue for students because they spend a lot more time face to face and then as you start to through your your yeah. as you start to become closer to qualification you get pulled more into paperwork side of things mm. and I, and it feels like the, the, the things that gave you joy, that gave you purpose, all like being snatched away from you a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. A colleague of mine who's also one of my doctoral students, Emma Jones, has just completed a study. She's about to do a viva, actually. So if you hear Emma, but um, she is just completing a study that's about the time that student nurses spend with people in forensic environments, um, carry a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder and interviewed both um both service users the men on the unit and she mm-hmm. also interviewed the student nurses and they said the really valuable things was just doing ordinary stuff having ordinary conversations mm-hmm. the fact that they didn't carry the keys so they weren't the jailer yeah they you know and they just really really valued the time that student nurses had and saw it as different and special and and um, not the same as um, as that that happens to when people become staff nurses and stay in the office. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to add anything to that, Vanessa? Because Ruri's come in with a humdinger of a question. Yeah, um, just yeah, Emma. Emma was um, one of our part of we mental health nurses as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, she contributed massively, you know, a few years ago. So it's interesting to hear that she's coming to the end of her studies as well. And that's great because I remember her talking about it in the in the early days. So, yeah, just to say that first of all. Um, but, yeah, I think there is a big, there is a difference with student nurses. And the danger is sometimes that they're the people that are out there talking to people and they're not necessarily the people that get in support and supervision Um sure at you know universities and things but actually on on wards and things that they're often you know talking to people for long periods of time um, and it always strikes me that and you know thinking back it's a long time ago but thinking back to being a student nurse myself I can still remember now you know 20 odd years ago people that um that I worked with and supported supported then and I do think there is something about the relationship you have with people as a student is very different, isn't it? Um, and I don't know how to articulate that, but it's one to think about, I think, because there is definitely something something that happens. And I don't think it is just going into the office, is it? I think it's more than that. There's a sort of change in the way that you are once you qualify that it's very different to how you can be more like human and present with somebody. It might be about humanity, actually. It might be about when you're a student, you're able to meet with someone as a human meeting another human much more. And then you somehow get socialised into sort of being a staff nurse. And yeah. uh, and and there's a different boundary there with people. Maybe it's maybe it's that, I don't know. It leads us brilliantly into this. I think we'll have to make our last question. And it's really asking about what are your thoughts on non-human relationships? <laughs> so, um, for example, between pets, which I think is one yeah. thing. And then robots for dementia patients um, experiencing dementia, um, even computerized CBT. So where where does the therapeutic relationship fall into into that? Yeah. Gosh, that's a really good one, isn't it? Because there was the study, I can't remember who wrote it, where people were doing online CBT and and they were going to a GP surgery, sitting down at a computer, coming away. And they said the the thing that made the biggest difference to them one of the things they said one that the, a huge difference was made by the receptionist who was really kind to them and made a cup of tea. Oh, there you go, yeah. You know, yeah. and um, a, and a, another PhD 
student of mine, Laura, who did a study in an, an eating disorder unit in the Netherlands, they had therapy dogs there. And one of the women there said that actually her constant, who doesn't judge her, who's always there, who shows her love and warmth and protects her, is her therapy dog. I think it's a, a frightening indictment of humanity when we can be out therapeutically performed by a dog <laughs> without any training. But there yeah. is, I think there's a real difference between living things and non-living things. So for, for me, a relationship somebody has with an animal where you know, mutual comfort is given and and there is a, it's not a human relationship, but I, I would say a connection is a helping connection there, isn't it? I don't think you deny that pets can be helpers as well as you can have a you can have a, a connection to to something that's alive, but you can't have a connection to a CBT program. And I always really worry about the kind of um, the idea that someone with dementia isn't getting isn't isn't valued enough to have human contact. That that's what worries me about it. Not like how good how good the robot might be. The point is, it's not real. Yeah, that's what worries me about it. It feels like a holding pen rather than a real experience. But, you know, I, I, I do understand that people do a lot of research in this area and they have very different experiences. Mm. And it's going to be an area that's of growth, whether whether whoever likes it or doesn't like it. But yeah. I wonder if you guys have any more thoughts on, um, we've talked about the CBT, but um, sort of like robot carers and things like that. Can Can a robot carer ever be therapeutic? Yeah, I don't know. It's really funny. I'm reading a novel at the minute and I'll have to share the link later. And it's about a man who actually, um, you know, buys a robot, a male robot and chooses it right down to, you know, character, personality and, and so on and lives with this robot and about the developing relationship between him and the robot. I'm not finished reading it yet, but it's really interesting. And certainly it reflects some of the thoughts that we're having here. So I'll, um, yeah, I'll share the link for that. But I'm a bit like Nikki. I'm a bit undecided. I'm undecided about it, really, because who knows where we'll go in the future and what we're saying now, um, you know, might seem completely bizarre in 40 years from now. But, um, yeah, there's something about the interactive element, isn't there, of, you know, being able to to speak to somebody and, and know that there's some authenticity in that interaction that is a real person not just a robot that's being programmed to respond to you in that way. Um, but I do, and I do think that pets and robots are different. But then mm. having said that, you know, a lot of people, the relationship they have with Alexa, for example, you know, people, <laughs> and it's just a simple thing, but people love Alexas, don't they? Because, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I, I think digressing. But cats and dogs, I think it's different, isn't it? To me, that's very different. You know, the bond I've got with my cat, you know, is lovely. Oh, for sure, for sure. I looked after my mum when she was dying for years. I went, I drove yeah. nearly over twenty miles every night to help her go to bed, and yeah. it's the most important thing you can do, isn't it? Look yeah. after. And, um, and I'll never forget, she was really, really poorly. It was near the end. And she said to me, do you know what, Karen? I wouldn't have been able to get through this. And I thought she was going to say without you. She said, without Velvet. And Velvet was the cat. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she said, well, on my own. She sits on my knee and she strokes me and she comforts me. I couldn't have got through this without Velvet. You know, <laughs> you know what? We're all just parts of a bigger picture, aren't we? We all, not yeah. one person, not one person, not one animal just sort of does it all. We're all parts of the bigger picture, actually. We really are. But actually, I just thought about another thing about the student nurse, actually, because that, that one thing that occurred to me about this, and this came out of Emerson to a degree as well, mm-hmm. but is um, that actually, when you're a student nurse, you've got this wonderful privilege of being there to learn, being there to learn, actually. And, and actually, service users, particularly in environments where they're there for a longer time, like a forensic area, really want to tell you about what's important to them and you can learn such a lot from them yeah more than we can teach them actually so I would say that actually use that time use that relationship to learn about them and not feel that you have to be the person with the answers not feel that you have to be the person that is the problem solver just be authentic trustworthy approachable be all of those things but actually let that person know that you're learning from them and because of being with them you're learning how to be a nurse and i think that is a, is is not they're giving you a gift 
gift as well as you yeah. giving the gift of cancer. Mm. So that creates a recipro- reciprocity, really. Mm. Mm. I love that. I think we're going to, because we're getting really near the end, we might need to make that our, our last idea. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that, Karen, or...? Yeah, I think just I think just if you if you can stick with that attach model where you just just make remember that it's not just what you do, but it's who you are, you know, be authentic, trustworthy, all of those things, actually being with the person and be not just doing for them, I think is the key to establishing that connection, that secure, valuable, precious connection that is the glue to everything else, I think. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you. Melissa, is there anything you wanted to add? Any messages? No, I think for me, it's just really important that we've had this conversation because I feel like in recent years, the therapeutic relationship conversation has got kind of diluted with um, a lot of the sort of reductionist models of, of mental health that are kind of much more dominant these days. And yet for me, I think the therapeutic relationship is the most fundamental thing that we can have with somebody and certainly what attracted me into mental health nurses and what maintains me as a mental health nurse so just that thought really and um yeah I've really enjoyed the conversation it's been great having you on and be good to, um yeah keep the conversations going about it as well yeah thank you thank you it's been an absolute pleasure and honor thank you thank you and there's still um questions and things coming in so we will circle back and try and have a look at those and answer them as best we can um next week we've got um fantastic dr amy pollard talking about um psychosis and a reason and and ideas around that which is brilliant she looks at that from a multiple um different perspectives which would be really useful for people to hear there's a couple more comments which i think i'm gonna have to skip over for today but just to remind you that um, if you've enjoyed this, um, this discussion, um, like the Facebook page, you know, absolutely tune in next week's we're around. Um, and also you've got a podcast there as well, if that's something you, that you're interested in. And if you like it, you can get it onto your phone. So do do share the words. Um, and if you are somebody who wants to come on as a guest, we have ideas for us to, to think or talk about, let us know because it's a conversation. So thank you very much, guys. It's been lovely to speak to everyone tonight. Um, and we're finishing up now. So good night all. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.